They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff, like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Hey, this is DeRay. Welcome to Pod Take the People. In this episode, we have me, Brittany Clinton, Sam, as usual. It's a little different. We are not all together, so we are sitting in the news separately. And then we have a conversation with Corey Bush, who's running for Congress in St. Louis. I've known Corey since the protest. I'm excited for you to get to know her. What really angered me so much was just seeing people that are paid to represent us. You're getting $30,000 a year, $60,000 a year, $174,000 a year to represent and serve the people in that area. And you wouldn't show up. And if you showed up, it was for a photo op. My word this week is about fear and what fear does to people. It's one of the reasons why President Trump is so intense about talking about gangs and crime on the border. It's why the police will always defend the institution, even when they kill people. They're just clearly egregious things. They'll always defend it by reminding you of the safety of your neighborhood. We need to be mindful of the things people are willing to believe if you get them scared enough. And when people get scared, they're just willing to make a set of sacrifices that they would never, ever make any other time. When people are scared, they're willing to let go of the things that they know to be their values. They're willing to let go of the things they know to be the truths that they live in because the fear changes the way people make calculations. And part of our work is not to run away from the fear, but it's to make sure that we measure the fear against the outcomes. Sometimes people use fear as a tool, not because you should be afraid, but because they know they can get you to compromise your values in the presence of fear. So what we always say about fear is it's not that fear needs to go away, but that fear shouldn't be the only emotion. Let's do this. Hey, it's Sam. And my news today is focused on the algorithms that detect hate speech online. So after numerous high-profile white supremacist terrorist attacks, and most recently a huge march in Portland of white supremacists, there have been growing calls for companies like Google and Twitter and Facebook to do a better job of identifying and removing white supremacist content online. But a new article from Vox actually shows that many of the algorithms that are used to do this work are themselves rooted in racial bias. So for example, studies have shown that the leading AI models for processing hate speech are one and a half times more likely to flag tweets as offensive or hateful when they're written by African Americans. They're also more likely to flag tweets as hateful if they're written in African American English. Finally, other research has found that there's widespread racial bias against black speech in academic data sets for studying hate speech. So in data sets that compile Twitter posts as examples of hate speech, 155,800 Twitter posts to be exact, tweets from African Americans are actually flagged disproportionately in that data set. Now, what explains the racial bias in the use of these algorithms? Well, it turns out that some of the tools like natural language processing that are used to identify particular keywords or phrases and flag them as hate speech are not doing a good job of understanding the context in which those words are used. So in many cases, terms that may be slurs in some settings 
are being used to provide context or explanations by black folks who are challenging other folks who are using racist language and who are themselves white supremacists. But the algorithm isn't smart enough apparently yet to detect when tweets and other posts are actually using language in response to white supremacist content or to help explain or debunk that content. And when content is being used in a context in which it is not offensive. Think about, for example, the use of the N-word and how the context and the person that is using it often is a very important factor in determining whether or not those terms are actually being used in hateful ways. But this is not only limited to the actual algorithms that are being designed to identify this content online. It also has to do with who the moderators are that review that content, that review those algorithms and determine whether they're actually performing accurately. And you guessed it, many of those folks themselves are not from communities that are impacted by these issues and especially are not representative, underrepresented groups like black folks, Latinos, and other folks who are being targeted by white supremacist violence. So all of this goes to say that Many of the tools, not only the algorithms, but also the humans, not only in tech, but also law enforcement and other sectors of society that have been called on to respond to the crisis of white supremacist violence are themselves not only ill-equipped to do so, but oftentimes are acting in ways that make the problem worse. So, you know, this is just a reminder to challenge those institutions, to challenge those companies to do better, not only in terms of representation, who's at the table, who's designing these algorithms, but also in making sure that every tool that is being deployed to address this crisis is doing it effectively, is doing it in a transparent way where those results can be audited and where these things can be flagged so that we can ultimately design and develop approaches to white supremacist violence that don't make the problem worse. So I want to talk about Google. Actually, I don't want to talk about Google. I want to talk about the fact that Google is deciding to support a nonprofit called Give Directly. And that is actually what I want to talk to. The nonprofit Give Directly actually works to give directly, as their title says, to people most affected by disasters and injustice with no strings attached. So what does that look like? When Hurricane Maria and Hurricane Harvey hit, Give Directly actually was able to get in touch with some of the most affected people and give them $1,500 on a prepaid debit card that had absolutely no strings attached. What we know about disaster relief in particular is that for the people who were affected, it can be very, very difficult to get access to the things that they most immediately need because so many organizations are either giving products instead of cash or funds or they are actually not able to access the things that those folks are giving because as we know from so many investigations of organizations like the Red Cross and others, there's so much administrative overhead that what people are giving out is actually relatively little. Or if you are somebody who is trying to support people in the midst of a disaster and trying to provide relief, Figuring out the local grassroots organizations to give to can actually be really difficult. you got to scour Twitter or Instagram or do a whole lot of searching and Googling to figure out where your money is best going to be spent and how that money is going to reach people most directly. So GiveDirectly comes in and handles all of that. And I know this may sound like an ad, but it's actually not. I found an article on Vox about Google's investment in GiveDirectly and found it very interesting because we talk all the time on the pod about all of the ways in which 
society casts a shadow of doubt on people who are suffering from either disaster circumstances or from injustice. We continue to see poverty or trouble as some kind of moral declaration on someone's character and therefore judge their ability to do for themselves well or not. And therefore, a lot of people think that giving directly to people is actually the last thing we should do because we don't trust people with their own money. But we're seeing over and over and over again experiments and hypotheses that fly directly in the face of that. Things like Give Directly, things like Housing First Solutions for Homelessness, that instead of all of these other programs that are built to study homelessness or the effects of homelessness, that if you actually give people who are housing insecure and homeless a stable place to live, that that helps them find stable employment, that that helps them create stability in their lives, and that a lot of times those Housing First Solutions are actually the most effective. We also see things like universal basic income. We see the work and the pilot that's being done by Michael Tubbs, who's mayor of Stockton, California. $500 every single month going to some of the most income troubled families in that area has meant a great deal. And $500 might not seem like a lot, but if you are living paycheck to paycheck, if you are working multiple jobs, it means more time spent with your family. It means that perhaps you can have a nest egg. It means that perhaps you can do saving for the kinds of medical disasters and unexpected things that happen to families all of the time. And that if you have to suddenly pay for a hospital visit or an ambulance ride, that you won't have your lights turned off the next month. So I wanted to bring these up because it continues to expand our imagination about what standing in solidarity with people and communities can look like. It gives us a different notion of the idea of philanthropy an understanding that philanthropy can actually actually empower people instead of always requiring that the person who receives the gift remains always connected to the giver. What's going on, everybody? This is Clint. I just wanted to send a quick note encouraging everyone to please read the 1619 issue of the New York Times. It is available in print. It is available online. It is available through a set of curriculum resources through the Pulitzer Center online. So teachers, you can use it in your classrooms. But it is a remarkable project that has scholars and writers and artists and essayists and fiction writers and journalists who are examining collectively the 400-year anniversary of the moment in which the first enslaved Africans were brought to this country in Virginia. And it is the vision of uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who is a staff writer at New York Times Magazine. I'm very lucky and feel enormous gratitude to be among the contributors and to have some new work in there. And it is just unlike anything that I've ever seen in the sense that for an organization like the New York Times, the paper of record, to have an entire issue of the magazine, to have parts of its newspaper, to have parts of its audio extensions and apparatuses dedicated to talking about how the legacy of slavery shapes every facet of contemporary American political, economic, social, and cultural life is not something to be taken lightly. It is something that I can't recommend enough. Teachers, I hope you use it in your classrooms. Workplaces, I hope you use it for your trainings. For people who might be familiar with this information, I hope that you see it as an affirmation of the work that you have done in your myriad of different capacities to bring this country to the place that it is and to force this country to reckon with who it is and who it has always been. So again, go check it out. Incredible work about capitalism, about health, about the physical infrastructure of this country and how everything is tied to the legacy of slavery. So go check it out. 1619 Project, New York Times. It's amazing. 
my new show the week is about prison gerrymandering. So a lot of people know about gerrymandering in general, which is when people use the political process to make these districts essentially that will guarantee that they will stay in power. So they cut the districts up in ways that defy any sort of logic. But the goal is to make sure that people can still stay in power. So they will carve out these little districts of their supporters, things like that. We know that gerrymandering is bad. People don't think, though, about prison gerrymandering. So this is not a new topic. It's been around, but there's a new article that came out called How Prisons Inflate Rural Voters' Power in the New Republic. And I just wanted to bring it up because as we talk about 2020, a lot of people have talked about the depressed turnout, but a part of it actually is about prisons, too. So the way it works is essentially prison gerrymandering is when the census counts prisoners as residents of wherever they're in prison, not where their original address is. So I'll give you the example of Cook County, where Chicago is in Cook County. About 60% of Illinois' prisoners are from Cook County. Again, Chicago is in Cook County. But 99% of them are counted outside the county. So say you are from Chicago, you've always lived in Chicago, you get arrested, you get sent to a prison somewhere else for the census. And for most government counting, you're actually counted as a resident of the new place, not where you actually are from. And the reason that matters is like when the census comes around, it determines the number of seats based on the population. So I'll give you an example of New York State. Prison gerrymandering helped the New York State Senate add an extra district in the upstate region. And without prison populations to pad the numbers, seven state Senate districts would have to be redrawn, causing line changes that would echo throughout the state. What we know is that prisons are actually disproportionately built in rural communities. So rural communities benefit dramatically from prison gerrymandering because up to 5, 10, 12 percent of the entire town's population can actually be the prison population. And again, those numbers can determine things like federal aid and a host of other resources and can determine whether or not there's actually a seat. Remember that prisoners can't vote in 48 of the 50 states, which means that, again, living near prison actually gives you more representation and political clout at the system level. And you think about places like the Arizona 8th Legislative District, about 14,000 prisoners live within the border of the 8th Legislative District. That's about 6% of the overall population. There are six states that now ban prison gerrymandering, like Nevada, Washington, California, Delaware, Maryland, and New York. But that is six out of 50. So there's work to be done all across the country to make sure that this issue doesn't incorrectly inflate the political power of a set of people, while at the same time disenfranchising a whole different set of people from participating in politics at all. That's the news. Don't go anywhere. More Politics the People is coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell y'all, They sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, 
And it literally is restaurant quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. I live by routines, especially my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. Because when Sunday rolls around, I'm not scared. I got my shopper on the way with all my favorites. Shipped, delight in every delivery. Learn more at Shipped.com. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, whew, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up. It can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot people. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. And now my conversation with Corey Bush, a 2020 congressional candidate from Missouri's first congressional district. She and I first met in the streets of Ferguson five years ago. Here we go. Corey, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Thank you for having me. I can't believe that it's five years since the protests began. We met in the street and, you know, so much has changed and so much has stayed the same since five years. Uh, How do you process all that has happened and hasn't happened in the past five years? Wow, it's amazing and also disappointing. One thing I'm disappointed by is the fact that we've seen so much change across the country. But then in Missouri, in the St. Louis area, we haven't seen that type of change. You know, it seems like we haven't progressed much other than we have a few elected seats that we were able to turn 
But outside of that, we have so much work to do. But I'm encouraged at the fact that a lot of us that are activists on the ground are continuing to push and do the work. I think you're right. I think there are a lot of places where changes didn't come to match the energy of the streets. You ran for office in 2018, but lost to Lacey Clay. Why did you run for office? Why are you running for office? Like, why do you think that's a part of the work, too? Why elected office? I believe that we have to be everywhere. People with the heart of the community, we have to be in every single facet of the community. You know, do we need protesters? Yes, we need protesters because we need people that are going to turn up and make sure that people are paying attention, that this struggle is still continuing. And then we need people in elected office that have the pen that are able to actually take what the people are saying on the ground and then put that into law. Take that and then have that type of change. We need people that are in the courtroom. We need people that are in the hospitals. We need people everywhere that have this heart. And so as far as elected office, you know, initially I didn't want to do it. You know, just being on the ground and seeing all of those elected officials, what really angered me so much was just seeing people that are paid to represent us. You're getting 30000 a year, 60000 a year, $174,000 a year to represent and serve the people in that area. And you wouldn't show up. And if you showed up, it was for a photo op. You know, while we are out there, people that are not getting paid to represent the community, people that went to work today or people that are just regular everyday folks that didn't have a playbook the day before, that didn't have this set up like if this happens in your community. This is what you do. Just regular people showing up to bring change in their community and see justice happen. We're out there getting our butts kicked. We're out there fighting 24 hours a day out there giving of ourselves. And so just seeing that I was so just angered by that. And so when I was asked to run, I said no initially. They kept coming and I kept saying no. But then I had to realize, especially in 2018, just deciding to run against Lacey Clay, when I thought about what he did out there on the ground, when I thought about all of those hours, me and the other frontline protesters and all the protesters, you know, everybody that was out there, all the work that we did and then just not seeing him, knowing there was a photo op and one day with a picture on a bullhorn, you know, and we're out there doing all of that work, you know, it was time. And so people said to me, well, why would you run against a black man? You're a black woman. Why would you run against a black man? I care about people taking care of the community and giving their heart the same way we did because we could have lost our lives out there. I don't know how many times bullets flew. I had bullet holes in my vehicle, bullet holes going past my face and my daughter's face. And so we were giving of ourselves right there on that street. And we can't say the same about the person that was supposed to be taking care of us. And so I ran because I believe that the heart of the people should be seated in D.C., somebody that just loves humanity. So meaning you love all. All people and you'll fight for them. One thing I want to ask you, too, is that I'm sure there are a lot of people who have asked you, like, why are you running against a Democrat? Right. Yeah. That, like, oh, yes. Basically, has been in the office for a long time. Yes. Like, why would you do that? I know you talked about like people saying, why are you running against a black man? But like, why are you specifically running against this person who has been elected for a while? Yes. Yes. Because it's, to me, it's not about a title. You know, it's about effectiveness. And if you are ineffective, if you're only touching the people that support you financially, if you're only touching the people that, you know, where something comes back in return, then there are so many people that don't feel represented. And so I don't care if you have a D. A D doesn't make you right. A D doesn't make you effective. A D doesn't mean that you are touching the community in the best way. And so that's why we have to run, because my positions, my issues are definitely that of a Democrat. So I'm a part of the Democratic Party. 
But the person that's sitting there and the work that they're doing is not enough for our community. There are people hurting. So I shouldn't just sit back because let me say this. People said, you know, you shouldn't go against the Democratic incumbent. You should, you know, if somebody's an incumbent, leave them there. Well, we have somebody named Steve Stinger who was an incumbent, who was terrible, who's about to go to jail. He's about to go to prison for what he did in St. Louis County. And people said, oh, nobody should be running against this person because he was an incumbent. So we were supposed to let somebody who was doing this pay to play scheme in St. Louis just sit there because they're an incumbent. No. Boom. You know, I ran for mayor in 2016 and I learned so much when I ran for office. I'd love to know what were the things that you learned when you were a candidate and what's the game plan this go round? So, you know, I grew up under politics. My dad's been in politics for more than 30 years. And so just growing up, I worked so many different areas of a campaign and um, I saw a lot of corruption. I saw a lot of greed. I saw my father hurt giving of himself. So when I went into this, I already had like an idea of what could come my way, just not on the scale that it came. And so I learned, for one, that it's so much harder to run for office as a black woman. Like, there's nothing like it. It's so much harder. People can love you. Oh, my God, I love you so much. Oh, I love the way you speak. I love this. I love that. I love this. But then they give you six dollars, you know, and then they give their favorite white candidate five hundred, you know, and it's like, well, what's the difference? Like, why do I get less? Why? You know, why don't you see me as someone you can donate to, you know, because it takes money right now. We want the money out of politics, but we're not there. And so it takes money to run. So I learned that you have to stay true to yourself, because at the end of the day, on those days when you're ready to say I'm done, when you see all the articles, the negative articles about you, when your opponent is putting lies in the media and all of that, when all those attacks are happening and when you're just tired, when you realize you didn't pay your electric bill just because you were so busy doing everything else and you come home and there are no lights on those days, just knowing what your mission is. Um, And so that's what I always have to remember, that just be you and stay clear with your mission. What are some things you think are misconceptions about Missouri or about Ferguson? And I use Ferguson the way that we think about it with the protests that, as you know, the protests were an entire region. They weren't confined to one place. What are some things about the protests that you think people just don't understand who weren't there or about your district? So starting with about the district, you know, just growing up in the district, that area is just divided. It's been a segregated area for such a long time. And I truly believe it started with the great divorce of 1876 when St. Louis split into St. Louis City and County. And it just seems like that spirit has just stuck with St. Louis. And so we're divided in so many different ways. And, you know, when Mike Brown was murdered, we just saw that, you know, initially just that split out there on the ground. But then it quickly started to change into this coalition. And so what people don't know is, Some have said it was just black people out there on the ground. Some people said it was just all white people out there on the ground. Um, And that's not true. You know, it was black people, white people. I would see white community members that would stand in between a black person and the police and would like stop the baton from hitting someone or would stand there to make sure that there was no violence. You know, we would see 
our Palestinian community. I'm so grateful for the delegation that came to St. Louis and sat in Canfield Green apartments, uh, the, that complex where Michael Brown was murdered, sat on the grass with us and taught us how to handle tear gas and how they put themselves on the line to do that. Our Latinx community, some of them could have been risking deportation, but they came out to stand with us, you know, and so just seeing people, even the Buddhists that came out to be with us, it was just so many, it was such just a melting pot. It was so many different groups of people from all walks of life that came together to stand for black lives and then to see that move around the country. People need to know that those lines weren't there anymore and we work together. LGBT community, so many groups, we work together. And now, it wasn't just that moment. We are still connected today. We learned that we have to pay attention to what's going on with others. And so we're still doing that today. You know, we are an amazing group of people and it's just growing would you say to people who have run and lost or people who have voted and it didn't work out their way or people who protested and the world hasn't really changed them? There are a lot of people in this moment who look at a lot of what's going on and they have lost all sense of hope. What do you say to those people? Yeah, I mean, I get it. I get it. But I would have to say when you stop, when you step back, that's how they win. And that's what they want. And that's what they expect. So don't give them that. When we stop, because if one stops, two stop, 10 stop, 50 stop, and it just keeps going. So with all of those people, when we stop and sit down, they win. Somebody is going to take that seat regardless. It's not going to be an open seat. Somebody's taking the seat. So all you're doing is handing it over. So you can't stop. We need you to continue on. And then to get past feeling like your voice doesn't matter. I'm a regular, everyday person that works a regular job, lives in a regular home, does regular things. And I decided to continue to push. And so many others of us have decided to continue to push, even with the death threats, the death attempts, the scrutiny, the surveillance, all of that that we endure on top of the criticism and attacks on social media and everywhere else. We decided to continue on because change is greater than the crap that they're doing to us. Because we remember what our mission is, you remember what your mission is and keep fighting. When you were out campaigning, what did you hear from people? What did they want? I can imagine all the doors you knocked or the forums that you went to. People had a lot of feedback about if you were elected, what they wanted you to do that would be different. What was that? Mostly it was be present. Like that was one of the main things that I heard was just that our congressperson is never around, doesn't care about us. We never see him. And we appreciate you for being in the community. So that was one thing. Another thing was actually writing bills, sponsoring bills that actually affect the area because people are going through so much. Some people were saying, well, in this other district, you know, this congressperson does this. You know, how come we don't have that? And so um, that was another thing. People also, they talked about the banking industry and how if I thought that I would change once I went to Congress, because they would say, you know, the current congressman is, they would say bought by banks, bought by the payday loan industry, you know, so how could I combat that? How could I make sure that I stay away from that? And I would just always tell them, well, right now I don't accept corporate PAC money. You know, I don't accept money from lobbyists. I'm someone who a quarter of a million dollars was brought to me to run last time. It was like, hey, we'll give you this money to run. I turned it down, even though that could have changed my race. 
And so that's something that people want to see is, will you stand up and be strong, you know, against those companies that are hurting our community? And so that answer is yes. Another thing people want to see is they want to see a woman. They want to see a woman in the seat. It's been 172 years and there has never been a woman in the seat. I remember being in the street in St. Louis and there were so many of us, all of us were sort of frustrated with the establishment, right? We were frustrated with the people in Congress, certainly the people in every mayor and city council person, stuff like that. Uh, I can imagine that there are a lot of people who support you, but also are like, what does Congress do? Like sort of like this idea that this role might not actually be the lever for change. How do you help people think about this role as something that can actually like positively impact their lives when so many people have never experienced a congressperson do anything really meaningful for them? Oh, my gosh. Yes, that is such a great question. First answer I'll give to that is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, and Ayanna Presley, all congresswomen that are doing some amazing things. We ran together on Justice Democrat Slate, me and the other four women. We ran together. So we this would have been work that we would have been doing that St. Louis would have been directly plugged into. Also, you know, one thing that I want to see because I haven't seen it and I've been wanting it to happen is I want to have town halls, regular town halls where we come and say, hey, we're going to be in St. Louis on this day at this place. Come because this is what's coming down. These are the bills that are being proposed or this is what some such and such is talking about. And how do you think we can turn this and make this a St. Louis thing? What is it that we need to see if this happens? I think having the input of the community is important. I understand that you can't take everybody's, you know, what everybody wants to do. You can't take everything and put it into one bill. I get that. But you can get the voice and know what your people want. Writing a bill, even though it's not probably an easy task, getting co-sponsors for a bill and then getting it passed through the House and through the Senate, but having that influence. So working to get that done, but seeing what people want first. What do you want? And then let's make that into a bill, not skipping over people. You know, it's more to being a congressperson than just naming buildings. It's more to being a congressperson than just signing on for stuff that we don't even have in our community. You know, Bison Act and all of that, you know, it's great things. But we have St. Louis has a lot of issues that that need to be dealt with. What advice do you have for people who don't know where to start? You know, I think about all of us who were in the street in the beginning. In so many ways, like activism came to us in that way. A lot of us had done stuff before the protest, but we were sort of called to the street and stayed in the street. And for so many people, that's not their story. You know, like they see the world around them happening this way, but it's not as in your face as it was for us. What do you say to people who their heart's in the right place? They want to do something. They have no clue where to begin. Mm, good question. I would say, first of all, take some time to figure out your heart. What is it that you love and what is it that you're most passionate about? And when you find that thing, then go join a group, join an organization or join a campaign. So whatever that is that you love, if it's fighting for animals, then go join one of those groups. If it's fighting for women's rights, then go link up with those groups. If it's fighting for gun control or, you know, if you want to go into politics one day, then go join a campaign or wherever your heart is. Do that. And then you can take that further. But just always stay connected. Always be a part And then go find other groups that are doing other work that's similar that may interconnect. 
intersectionality is important. And I think that if we just stay in one area, I think we start to lose focus and we get burnt out easily. So I would say do that. And this is the other thing. There is no activist guru that goes around and says, "Okay, you've completed 217 hours worth of community work or activism. Now you are ordained an activist. That does not happen. You're an activist because you're actively consistent about the work. So get out there and be involved. People call us activists because we were there. So show up, be present, do the work and make sure that when you're doing the work, it's not about you. It's never about you. It's about change. It can never, ever be about you. And last question is, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? You know, be the change that you want to see. And I know that came from Gandhi and I know people have issues with that. But the quote is still great. And I love the quote. And so that sticks with me every single day. Awesome. Well, Corey, I can't wait to come uh, knock on doors for you. Listeners, y'all better uh, support Corey. And Corey, I can't wait to see you soon. Yes, you too. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.